What does the great image of Daniel chapter 2 represent? And how does the metal man image relate to Revelation chapter 1? Well, joining us again from the Theopolis Institute in the United States is Dr. Alistair Roberts and also my co-host, Rido, the Reverend Ian Reid of King's Grace Presbyterian Church, Palmerston North, New Zealand. Gentlemen, welcome back to the God's Story podcast. Okay, it's good to be with you again. Thank you for returning. Hi, Rito. How are you? Now, uh, we talked last time about Daniel chapter 1 and about chiastic structures and all sorts of stuff. And last time we talked to about the conflict of empires in the book of Daniel. But I wonder, Alistair, how does chapter 2 really establish and set up this conflict of empires further? Yeah, so one of the things that we notice early on is that there is a crisis in this empire. Um, Nebuchadnezzar is the most powerful man in the world in his day, and yet there seems to be a crisis in the way that he sees his servants. He can't trust them, and so he's almost setting a test for them because he doesn't believe that his diviners and soothsayers and magicians and others are able to truly give him the understanding of this dream. He feels out of control, even though he is the most powerful man. We see also that there is this, within the dream, the the message of the failure of this particular empire that he has set up. It's not going to be the one great empire to end them all. It's going to have to give way to three, at least three succeeding empires, And then those empires are going to fall ultimately before an empire that will stand forever, which is not Nebuchadnezzar's. And so I think already we can see something set up there. I think we can also see, as I've noted in the previous discussion, the importance of the background of Babel here again, that the story of Babel is a story of towers reaching, a tower reaching to heaven and the attempt to bring together all people in a city Tower of Babel was always a twofold construction project, a tower and a city. And so the city is the horizontal um, building project, the attempt to bring all humanity together in one um, political community. And then the tower is the vertical, the sort of religious building project. And that Tower of Babylon is a similar thing. On the one hand, it's the attempt to bring all humanity together in this empire. In another way, it's the attempt to bring this great power structure of the empires, um, raise them up so it becomes a means of control over humanity and rising up to the level of the gods themselves. And so I think that can help us to understand something of Babylon's ambition and also the Lord's answer to and challenge in this chapter. Yes, because it very much becomes God's oikomene or empire, doesn't it? How, how were these empires of Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome God's empires or empire for what we call the restoration period or restoration era? When we're reading scripture, we can think about different eras of Israel's history. So if you're going back to the very beginning, the patriarchal period um, after the call of Abraham, and then on to the time um, the maybe chapter 46 and the descent into Egypt. Um, The period in Egypt is a sort of womb for Israel, where they're within this land being persecuted, great pangs, and they're brought forth as if from a womb. They become a newborn people and nation, and then they're brought through the wilderness to the promised land, where they become a new form of people, where they're actually established in tribal possessions, 
within a land under judges. Then there's the development of the kingdom at a later stage. And after that, we can see various periods of the kingdom after the division and, and the rise and fall of um, Israel and Judah's power in their respective regions. But what we have in the period from around 609 BC and the um, rise of Babylon um, is this period of imperial dominance. So it would be the big empires. Prior to that, you had the Assyrians, which wiped out um, Israel. And then you had Judah standing and being preserved against them in 701 BC. But in the years that follow, these empires rise and become more and more dominant. And from 586, particularly in the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonians, to the coming of Christ, we have Israel's existence largely existing under the dominance of these successive powers. There is a period of independence with the um, Hasmonean dynasty, um, but for almost all of this time, they are living in a world that's dominated by these powers. And by the time of Christ, the vast majority of the population of, um, of Israel is living outside of the land. So the Jewish population is scattered throughout the Mediterranean world in North Africa and places like Egypt and then in places like Greece and Turkey, Asia Minor, and um, even to Rome. Now, when we get to the book of Acts, this is important because the mission of the church goes out. There are communities all over the place already who know the message of um, the Old Testament, the prophets, promises. And so the answer of the gospel to all of those things has a very ready soil prepared for it. And from those initial communities of Jewish Jews and Gentile Christians can arise a church that is aware of these, this pre-story, as it were, that the gospel is not just a bolt from the blue. It's something that comes as the fulfillment of many previous promises. Now, what prepares for all of that? is the establishment of these empires. As Israel and Judah cease to exist as independent nations, not just within a world where their tribute, tributaries and um, vassal states, but they're actually dissolved into these larger empires, Israel itself takes on something of the character of the Levites within the land. So whereas the Levites are scattered, they don't have a possession of their own, they have these various cities, but they're scattered throughout the various tribal possessions, and they present a witness to the unity of the nation within their um, their disperse their dispersal. Um, we have the diaspora of the Jews serving a similar purpose among the nations. And so, while it might seem to many of us reading these stories, we think, "Oh, the temple's fallen, Jerusalem's been destroyed, its walls broken down, Judah's been depopulated." And so we have this situation where, of course, the nation has, God's purpose has failed on some level, and the nation is really in terrible times. There's something of God's purpose that's being fulfilled with this. It's as if Israel were a dandelion clock, and a great wind has come against it, and now it's blown all over the place. And what we find is, particularly with people like Daniel, um, with people like Nehemiah and um, think about the story of Esther and Mordecai, 
These are figures that rise to great prominence and significance within their respective realms of exile and serve a much wider community. So on the one hand, they're serving Jewish exiles and then Jewish people within there um, who returned to the land, but they are also being a minister, they're ministering to pagan kings and serving as messengers of the, the Lord's word. And so this is all an extension, not just a contraction of the Lord's work. The fall of the nation is not the end of the story. It's again, as we've seen, the Lord can, by seeming to have last, work his greatest victories. And so when it seems like Judah has been destroyed, when they've been taken away, it will actually be through those exile communities that the Lord prepares the way for the gospel to break forth all over the known world. So Nebuchadnezzar's empire, which he thinks he's very craftily and cunningly put together himself to his glory, actually is transformed into God's empire because of the role of Daniel and the other Jewish folk who are meant to be faithful witnesses, I suppose. Yes. And they're at the beginning of this period, when at the end we'll see um, the small stone that ends up breaking down the whole statue. And so I think what we have is in the resisting force of Daniel and his friends, we have some um, foreshadowing of the power of the Lord's purpose and his kingdom to overcome. But even in the smallest seeds of these faithful Jewish exiles, we can see the power of the Lord's people to resist the strongest and the greatest of empires of their day. Yeah, what actually happens in this chapter? We mentioned Nebuchadnezzar's dream and the fact that his advisors can't help him, but what, what actually happens? The issue is not just the dream. The issue is the, the political crisis, his lack of trust in his advisors. The, and this all provides, as we see in the case of Joseph, the opportunity for someone who um, is very much a novice. This is Daniel just at the end of his training. And now he can actually rise to great prominence as a result of proving that he's able to do something that none of these other authorities can do. Now, just as in the case of Joseph, this is done because he is the spirit of the Lord with him. And that, again, is a way in which the Lord is proving his power through, it's not just Daniel in his personal wisdom. This is the Lord proving his wisdom over against the, the false wisdom of the magicians and others. So we can see, I think, some of the background in this in stories like the way that the Lord proves his power against the Egyptian magicians in the Exodus, or the way in which Joseph proves his wisdom and the Lord's guiding of him with the interpretation of Pharaoh's dream. In a similar way here, there is this crisis of the dream, the political crisis that goes with that, and the rise of someone who is faithful, um, who's able to be a loyal servant of the king, um, in the same way as Joseph was, but then also someone who's able to be, in that situation, a loyal servant of the Lord too. And as he interprets the dream, he gives us a sense of the great themes of the book as well. I mean, this is what the rest of the book, this sets the frame for the rest of the book this story of the empires, because from the chapters that follow, we'll see again the bringing down of the great tree, we'll have the confusion of the languages, and then we'll get to this, the, I mean, that's the initial downfall of the golden head, 
And then in chapter seven, we can see the four beasts corresponding with the um, different parts of the statue. And then in the chapters that follow, you see all these periods mapped out in a series of visions. And so I think this chapter is perhaps one of the most important chapters for setting up the book. Chapter seven, I think, is the most important chapter in the book, but this sets up so much of what happens. Yeah, so what's the significance of the image then and all the various parts of it? So the image is a humaniform image. Um, the image of chapter three is not so clearly a human form image. If we actually think about the dimensions, they don't map onto a human being very clearly. Um, but what we have here is a human image that's raised up and it's divided into various sections made of diff composed of different metals. So we have a movement down from the most precious metal down to something that's more common. But we can also think about as the movement from weaker and but more precious to um, stronger in some senses. So the iron is the weapon that you'd want to use for war. You wouldn't be fighting with gold weapons. The gold weapons wouldn't be very effective, but um, iron weaponry would be more effective. Um, so the iron weapon, the iron weapon is very strong. The, uh, what we have at the end though is something that's a bit more brittle because it's this admixture. So you move from a pure metal down to something that's um, an alloy um, with the, the bronze. And then you have the admixture beyond that where you have the clay and the, the iron mixed together, which don't actually form an alloy. alloy. It's just this admixture that's brittle and weak as a result of that. So it's a movement from precious to more common. It's a movement from weaker to stronger in some sense. And we can see that as a movement out into the world. So in the most holy place, you have things made of gold. We can think next down on the scale are some of the brackets within the construction of the tabernacle, which are of silver. And then as you go beyond that, the courtyard, you have the bronze. And then for more common you, instruments and things within the camp, you'd have iron. And um, or for weaponry, you'd have iron, um, although they didn't have iron so much early on. Um, but you'd have earth and other things like that, clay mixed with it. So this is a movement out from precious and less common and weaker to those things that are more serviceable and more common. So maybe we could think about this as not just, it starts off with Nebuchadnezzar, but this movement out of this imperial order is one that will eventually touch the whole world and it will be stronger in some ways with the Romans, but at the same time, um, that brings in this level of brittleness as it overextends itself. Um, so there's that sort of movement. We can also think within the structure, there are numbers implied. Our bodies have num numerical structures to them. So you can think about the fact that we have one head, we have two sides with two arms. Then we have digits, so 10 toes of the statue. Um, and those, I think, also correspond with some of the ways in which these structures are ordered. Um, so that's, that's one way of th thinking about it. Also, it's a, it's a statue that's established in time, going down from what comes first. So it's as if it is starting 
Um, the first moment, it's not building up, it's going down. You can maybe think about that as this is actually something that's been established by the Lord. It's going to be brought down by him. But it's coming down from heaven in some sense and being built down. And that development is one that leads from the most precious down to the most common. And it's also one that leads from um, this pure metal to just this um, admixture. And it's, in many ways, it's a statue that represents humanity because it is an image of a man. And it's a male project, it's a, a man's projection of himself as this idol-like figure. And we can think about that in terms of empires more generally. Empires can often be hubristic attempts to raise humanity up to the level of a deity to present, you can think about the great picture on Hobbes's Leviathan, this picture of this figure of a man composed of many men striding the world. And that's what empires can be like. It's blowing up this great male figure with this um, statue of representing human power, but primarily you can think about the sort of male power of this leader, um, Nebuchadnezzar and his successors. And ultimately, what this vision proves is the insufficiency of that. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is hoping, um, as um, my friend James Bajon points out, for an interpretation that presents not just this is what it means, but this is how you respond to it. This is how you avert this. Um, and that, I think, provides us with a sense of what the statue is about. Um, it's a a challenge to the hubris of empires. It's a prophecy about what the Lord will bring about in the future. It's a prediction of the specific empires that are going to arise. So the series that they're going to come and some of their significant characteristics. So we can think about the two-sidedness of the Medo-Persian empire that will come next and think about the way in which the um, the theme of gold is important also in chapter um, six with the weighing out and the, the minor, these sorts of references back. Um, and then it points to ultimately the Lord is going to be the one that achieves what Babel and Babylon could never do. He's going to create this great mountain and a mountain is a symbol on the one hand of joining together the four corners of the earth so it extends in its base it's, think of it as a it's just a massive pyramid it extends in its base and it touches the four corners and it also extends in its peak and joins together heaven and earth and that's essentially what the lord's kingdom is going to be you can see that theme throughout the scripture from the story of babel it leads into something like the story of jacob's ladder where he has, there are allusions back to the story of Babel, where he gathers together stones in order to sleep. He lies down and there's this thing rising up to heaven. And then the place is called, this is the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And if you think about it, Babel interpreted differently means gate of God. And so that's taking gate of, gate of heaven um, house of God is bringing together elements of Babel. It 
invites us to look back to that story. And the message is that the Lord is ultimately going to be the one who joins together heaven and earth. The Lord is going to be the one that makes man's name great, as he promises to Abraham. And this is what we see in the story of chapter two of Daniel. That great statue is going to be brought down. The Lord in its place is going to make his kingdom great. And that is going to be one in which the true end of Babel is achieved, as we see on things like the day of Pentecost. Yeah. Rita, I'm going to bring you in here. Questions for Alistair about the significance of the image? You're kind of saying it's both a general and specific you know, kind of prophecy in some way. That it's, it's general in the sense of this is what empires look like, uh, but specific as in there will be some specific empires that this is referring to as well. I think it's primarily specific. Um, it's referring to Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon, and the successors of that. So Bab- the head statue is not just Babylon. It's primarily Nebuchadnezzar as the personification of he is, Nebuchadnezzar is Babylon. Um, and the ones that follow him are very much weighed and measured relative to Nebuchadnezzar himself. Um, and then you can see the ones that follow from that are identified with specific empires. These aren't just generic symbols. So the um, silver is the Medo-Persian. And later on, we have other images that are used for these. We can think about the images that are used in chapter seven or in the chapters that follow have sort of ram with um, uh, or the goat um, and these sorts of images are used for the different um, nations. And so the horns are connected with particular rulers, for instance, or the bear raised up on one side. Uh, When we get to Revelation, we can see an amalgam of many of these things with the description of the beast, which brings together is a sort of hybrid of all of these creatures in this great ultimate beast that brings together um, all the beasts that went before it. What's the significance of the clay, Alistair, in the vision? Because that's important, isn't it? Yes, the the clay could, I mean, one of the things, the the clay represents, um, whatever it specifically is, it represents the overextension. Um, So this is at the very extremities, um, the feet and the the toes. This represents uh, something that's unstable and it's at its extremities. It's something that's reached too far. And um, we might think about that also in terms of other ways in which things could not be assimilated. And so a few chapters later, the inability, or a chapter later, the inability to melt down, as it were, the faithful three Jewish friends of Daniel into the worshipping multitude at the image. And so we might think about maybe it's the inability to to assimilate faithful um, worshippers of the Lord into the Roman structure or something like that. But there are different ways we can interpret it. I think that's one way we could go. Am I right in remembering in uh, James Jordan's book that he relates it to uh, the Jewish leaders and the Herods? Yes. Some of his, Am I right um, in remembering, remembering that? Um, I think he really, I have to remember, um, I think it's related in part to it is the Jews within the larger imperial structure um, and the fact that you can't just melt the Jews down into this pagan imperial structure Mm. 
the Herods and others would attempt to do that, but they could not ultimately be successful. And so as a result, the structure would be weak um, at those extremities. Either it's going to step back from its hubris or it's going to overextend itself and end up being in a situation where it's ripe to be toppled. So this is a new, this is a new Dagon that's about to fall. And the stone that smashes it? So we have a number of stones that are mentioned within scriptures. We can think about the chief cornerstone that's promised, or can think about the ways in which Jesus uses that sort of imagery of the stone that will crush the person on which it falls, or the, the stone that is the stumbling stone. Um, this one stone that's been established by the Lord that will be the base upon which he's going to build his edifice. Um, and so I think that's one way we could have an angle of approach upon that imagery. We can also think about the significance of key stones within scripture. Think about the stones that are gathered together by Jacob, like the um, story of Bethel. Or we can think about the way in which the, the Lord... Um, the Lord writes on tablets of stone, the, brings water from the rock. The Lord is the rock that follows, um, as Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So that sort of association might, might be in view. Um, the restriction that, or the contrast between bricks which were used for the Babel project and the stone that is used um, for the altars. That's another interesting thing that we have within scripture. You should not use these bricks to form the altar. Rather, it should be an unhewn stone. Um, so maybe this is an altar image that the world is being, this new order is going to be set up as a sort of altar. We might think about the way that Christ's tomb has elements of this imagery. This is cut out of the rock. It's um, not, never been used before. And Christ emerges from it as the stone that the builders rejected. It's as if he's quarried from that, that rock. He comes out and he becomes the great stumbling stone that is the foundation of the new order, but is also the means by which um, everyone will be tested. Are they going to build on the stone or are they going to reject it and end up being crushed by it? So Jesus' kingdom, the Lord Jesus Christ and his kingdom brings to an end this whole empire system. Yes. So I think that's what the book of Revelation is largely about. It's the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy of the ending of the kingdoms and the rise of the Son of Man. Now, the chief change that's taking place there is not necessarily registered on the pages of regular history. It's a change in the heavens. And that change in the heavens does have effects on the historical stage. But you need to see the connections as they're prophesied. And so the chief, I mean, it may seem as if it's just the um, downfall of a city in a rebellious province, but the defeat of Jerusalem in AD 70 is an event of cosmic significance. Um, as we see in, in Revelation, this is the representation of the end of an old order and the rise of a new one where Christ sits at the right hand of the Father and this new creation has been inaugurated. How does the image of the metal man here in Daniel 2, compare with the, the image of the Lord Jesus as a metal man in Revelation chapter 1? Well, before looking at, at that, I would suggest even looking just a few chapters later in Daniel itself, where you have a description in chapter 10 of um, 
in verse 5 and following. I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his waters, of his words, like the sound of a multitude. And then he reacts, falling as dead. Now, that's very similar to the image that we get of Christ in Revelation chapter one. I think this is an image, this is a vision of Christ that Daniel receives. Um, Christ is Michael, um, Christ is the one that's going to come and establish his kingdom to as the son of man. He's going to be the one that fulfills the prophecy of chapter seven of Daniel. But that is something that can be seen, as you note, as something that is the true um, reality that this metal image is the weak mockery of. Now, that image is something that is established by God. The Lord wants these beasts and these empires. They serve a purpose. They're there to protect his people. They're there to provide the ground from which his kingdom will arise. And but yet they have an expiration date. They're not going to last forever. And after that period, there will still be empires, but those empires will be set on a very different footing. And from that point onwards, it will be the period of the Lord judging the nations and ruling over the nations as the one who was established on heaven's throne. Yes, and so God reveals the uh, dream and the significance of all this imagery to Daniel, and he's able to go and, and tell the king the, the truth. Uh, to what extent then is this chapter about God's wisdom and power and so, indeed sovereign control over human history? I think when we go through passages concerned with the Lord's dealing with foreign powers, that's often one of the themes that's at the forefront. Think about the story of the Exodus. So much of the Exodus is about proving the Lord's power and precision, that the Lord is the one who can declare what he's going to, to do and declare it precisely. So at one point, trying to remember which one of the plagues it is. Um, Moses says, when would you like this plague removed? And Pharaoh says, tomorrow, um, which is a very strange answer if you think he just wants to be relieved from the pressure of the plague. But that's not just what he wants. He wants to see, is God really in control? Or is God just making some lucky guesses? Is God just in a situation where he can um, work out what's going to happen and tell it in that sense or is he actually the one who's the master of these things and what we see here i think is something similar the lord is proving that he is the one who gave um nebuchadnezzar the dream and can confirm that dream to his servant and declare it now another thing that we notice about that is that this is the testimony of two witnesses two independent tellings of the same dream means that oh, yes. we know that this dream is a true dream this is not just um nebuchadnezzar making something up and then daniel um interpreting something that he's heard from the king this is actually a true message of the lord and as a result we know that the Lord is the master of the hearts of kings. The Lord often reveals things to kings by dreams. Think about Pharaoh in chapter 12 of Genesis, then later on in the story of in in the story of Genesis with Joseph. So the Lord reveals things to kings by dreams. He is the one heart of the king is in the hands of the Lord. He moves it wherever he wants, like rivers of water. And so the Lord is sovereign 
even over the person who's supposedly the most powerful in the world. Um, and he's able to prove this sovereignty and his knowledge and, and wisdom through his servant, Daniel, who again testifies to the fact that the Lord is ultimately the source of sovereignty. Um, and so this king who's afraid at the this premonition of the loss of his sovereignty is told this is the one who really holds it. He's actually giving you this warning. And if you actually turn to him, um, you will find that this sense of loss of control will be answered by a knowledge of the one who really is in control. Yes, and we see that in chapter four, don't we, when Nebuchadnezzar submits and presumably is converted to the Lord, and therefore the whole empire system becomes what is already God's empire system. And, and Daniel and his friends are the advisors who are put into witness to these Gentile kings. Is that about how it runs? Yes, and it's always important to remember that we don't make God Lord. God is Lord of all already. The question is whether we submit or not mm. and recognize mm. that or not. Mm. And in these chapters, <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar is being forced to recognize what is already true, that the Lord is in control. And that message, just as in the case in the case of Pharaoh, that was a message that was very strongly resisted. In the case of um, Nebuchadnezzar, he actually comes to bow the knee and he's blessed as a result. And we see in the description of the first beast in chapter seven that it's given a, the heart of a man. And, and so it, it ends up having some more elevated status. And I think that's something of what we see with the character of Nebuchadnezzar. And this, I think, more generally is a foreshadowing of the way that Christ will use kingdoms more generally, that the story of the gospel is a story of the conversion of many kingdoms, nations bowing the knee, kings coming to Christ. You can think about the way in which the nations are the ones that are to be baptized and to be um, taught the gospel, made disciples of. Um, now, of course, that's referring to individuals from all nations, but the nations themselves are objects that we need to seek to convert. And so the focus upon speaking to rulers and authorities that we see in the book of Acts, for instance, or going to the center of the empire is not accidental. The Lord does want to speak to the very hearts of these systems of power. And in the same way, we should do the same. We have a, a message that is mighty in God. We can pull down strongholds with this. This is something that's addressing powers and authorities. It's torn down the mighty from their thrones and it's lifting up the humble. It's something that is a battle on earth that corresponds with the battle in heaven with the casting down of the dragon and his angels. And so I think having that sort of confidence in a situation of exile would have been incredibly important for the, the Jews at this period of time, but it's no less important for us. Yes. Yes, thank you, uh, Alistair. Fabulous as always. Ian, your comments, thoughts as we close? No, it's very, it's very interesting, isn't it, how Daniel kind of is a summary of everything that's come from past in the Old Testament, but also speaks forward as well into the New Testament. Mm, it's fascinating. Uh, I can't wait for Chapter 7. So full of rich, unbelievable symbolism and imagery. Um, Alistair, before we close, just quickly, uh, should we mention James Jordan's book on, on Daniel? Because that, that is absolutely fabulous and has helped me understand the book so much. Yes, The Handwriting on the Wall mm. is a collection of um, Jordan's 
studies over work over many, many years. He's spent researching the book of Daniel. Now, Jordan is someone who has given more thought than almost anyone else to scripture, sim, scripture symbolism and its integrity as a larger um, as a larger system. And as you read through the book, I think you'll see very much the fruit of this sort of extensive att- attention to biblical symbolism. The a, a very keen eye for literary structure and parallels and things like that and a sense of the unity of the biblical text, uh, a confidence in the truth and the accuracy of scripture. This is a historical book, and it predicts things that occur in the future, and that we can read it with a joyful confidence that it will, it will answer our questions, it will withstand our analysis, and that we will be able to answer various of the challenges that liberals and others put forward. Mm. I found this book incredibly rewarding and challenging and um, yes, endlessly enthralling. Yeah, yes. Highly recommend it. Yes, if you're listening, rush out and get a copy. Uh, Handwriting on the Wall, The Handwriting on the Wall by James B. Jordan. You won't put it down. It's absolutely mind-blowing. As has been our time together again, Dr. Alistair Roberts of the Theopolis Institute and uh, Reverend Ian Reid Rido of King's Grace Presbyterian Church, Palmerston North in New Zealand. Gentlemen, thank you once again for your time. We've had a great summer season of twice weekly episodes, but we want to keep our focus on quality rather than quantity. So we'll be going back to weekly episodes from the beginning of March. From the beginning of March, Gold Story Podcast goes back to weekly episodes. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story Podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash godstorypodcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.